If you've ever thought about hiring an advisor or if you have an advisor that you're currently working with and you might be trying to figure out, are they doing the right thing? Did you hire the right person? And you just don't know generally where to find good information about this. The show is going to be for you. For those that kind of do-it-yourself investors, the show might not be for you, but there's still going to be some good nuggets in here that I think you will enjoy. So let's jump in and figure out what your advisor should be doing. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Really excited to have you guys here. This show is going to be all about understanding the different types of quote-unquote financial advisors and why, honestly, we're one of the least trusted group of professionals out there. We're going to go through several segments. So I want to kind of give you an outline of what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to talk a little bit about fee structures and the different types of advisors and how actually we're considered probably one of the most least trusted group of professionals out there because the financial industry is not your friend. We'll talk a little bit more on that. We've got a cool mystery money hero that we're going to be bringing on. We're going to be answering a question in our curbside consult segment, as well as our quick community update. So if you're new to the show, welcome. I'm really excited to have you here. There's tons and tons, hundreds of hours of content for you. So make sure you'll subscribe to the show. And if you are a veteran here, thank you so much for being here. Without you, the show would not be what it is. So I'm really excited to kind of jump into the question today because one, somehow some of you still don't know that I am a financial planner for a living. This is what I do all day, every day. And I bring on my partner at our fee-only financial planning practice, Casey Cress, with me to talk on all of our financial assessments on Fridays. But sometimes I get emails from you and or, or questions in our community that say, hey, I have an advisor, but I don't necessarily think they're giving the best info and you're asking questions out in open forum or directly to me via email. And I usually end up saying, well, are they insurance people? Are they investment managers? Are they actually financial advisors? Is this someone you walk in and talk to at the bank? And the reason is because just like the term doctor, you could be an MD or DO, you could be a doctor of dentistry. I'll actually go there. You could be an ND. The term financial advisor covers a gigantic group of people with many, and let's call it for the lack of a better word, subspecialties, even though a lot of these are just salesmen and women and products that you likely don't need, but they're all technically financial professionals. So that group would include insurance salespeople or annuity salespeople. It would include investment managers, it could include investment wholesalers, could be private wealth managers, financial coaches, which are basically those that are going to give you some financial advice, but have no laws, regulations around what they say or do other than investment advice. And generally, they don't come with any background in finance. There's financial therapists, there's personal CFOs, there's financial advisors or financial planners. They're synonymous with each other. And even sometimes tax professionals get lumped under this group of financial professionals, even though CPAs are are very different than most of these financial professionals that I've mentioned. Now, things have been changing for this profession over the past 10 to 20 years. And really, it's with the emergence around better fee structures that are able to reduce conflicts of interest. The internet has greatly expanded the amount of information that is available to everyone. So things become ultimately more transparent. Regulations are starting to catch up. 
that are really trying to help the consumer, but still there's a massive lobbying power that is blocking a lot of this stuff, like the fiduciary rule that was being proposed and trying to be implemented. There was such pushback because those that sell these type of products were upset that they'd have to become fiduciaries. And it wasn't even fiduciaries all the time. It was fiduciaries in your retirement accounts. So if you went to, and these are not financial planners, even though they might say that they are, right? Edward Jones, Northwestern Mutual, one of these big shops that sells and just pushes a bunch of products. They were upset that you had to become a fiduciary inside the retirement account. So they couldn't sell annuities or other types of insurance products inside of your retirement accounts, because that would not be the right thing to do. And they were going to be legally have to become a fiduciary on that. But it didn't actually mean that they had to be a fiduciary outside of your retirement accounts. So it wasn't even like a full fiduciary. And there was a ton of pushback. So it's interesting to see the financial industry evolve into what it's becoming. There's been so many mistakes over the last, I mean, you can go back decades and decades. Unfortunately, some have committed fraud to the tune of like billions, maybe even trillions of dollars at this point. And we're actually going to do a really fun segment coming up around some cool financial history, things that have happened in that. But anyway, going back to the trusted professionals, like some of these professions like accountants are the most trusted professionals out there. And usually it's because they have the least amount of conflicts of interest, whereas in the financial industry have tons of conflicts of interest. They're riddled with conflicts of interest. When you're looking at the profession as a whole and you're lumping everyone together, it's hard to understand or distinguish between the two because they're all kind of slightly overlapping. But imagine that as a physician, you had to deal with one patient for literally everything. That could be physicals. It could be mental health assessments. It could be minor procedures. It could be heart surgery. It could be anything. If you were just the one person that had to do everything, all of those things were on up to you. It would be hard to be the expert. It'd be impossible to be the expert on everything. And so our industry has tried to differentiate themselves. So instead of the advisor trying to do everything for everyone, now there's other groups of professionals that are starting to really market themselves differently. The unfortunate piece is that the insurance people generally have a lot more money and marketing behind them. And so they kind of mask themselves as financial advisors or professionals, when in reality, all they're trying to do is sell you insurance. And you've seen those people that come and speak to your med schools, your residencies or fellowships, even your practices. And that's the ones that are, hey, we do planning for free. But by the way, buy these policies, you need disability, you need health insurance, you need disability, you need term insurance, buy these things, and we'll do all the planning for free. Well, really, they're just insurance people. And they're going to give you really basic, honestly, probably half-assed plans that are not really financial plans. So I'm hoping to know this, that scenario of you being the physician for everything kind of gives you, it's an extreme, but I hope it gives you a little bit of shed some light on some of that misconception around how an advisor literally handles everything. But as a financial planner, we look at this as we've got a job to one, protect your money from you, but two, to educate you on all the things that you really need to understand around personal finance. So as you could tell, I love educating, right? That's what this whole podcast is about. Financial, not just the show, but the whole financial residency is going five feet down and a mile long, trying to explain to you everything that you could possibly need to know in personal finance without all the industry jargon and a bunch of sales pitching craps that honestly, you just don't need to be distracted from. 
And when we're working with clients, we look at this as we're not going to be there every day with you, right? We're not sitting on your shoulder saying, that's a good person. That's a bad person. Don't invest in this or invest in this. We can't be there. So we're trying to educate and help bring you up to speed on the personal finance things that you really need to understand. Your advisor should be doing that. And some advisors want to sell this black box that they've got some specific financial strategy, investment strategy that you need to follow in order to be successful. Some of them even convince you that you need to be hitting home run after home run after home run in, in, with respects to your investments in order to just retire. A lot of that hinges on their insecurity that if they teach you too much, you will eventually just do it yourself. And I mean, you guys are the smartest people in our population, the top 1%, you're extremely brilliant. A lot of you can do this by yourself, but there's also a lot of you that behaviorally, you don't even want to put time into it. You, it's hard for you to maybe even listen to the podcast completely through because finance is really dry and boring. You don't enjoy it. Like you work really hard, you get off, you don't want to go read a book or listen to a podcast or dig into a bunch of blog posts and then go and actually write the plan and implement it and put all those things together. You'd rather outsource and use your time for other fun things. All fine and dandy. But when you look at some of those subspecialties of financial professionals, they know that you don't have a formal education in finance. And so you've got that target on your back. So when we look at what advisors should be doing, they should be covering cash flow management, life planning. They should be coordinating with other specialists in the fields that you need, whether that's a an attorney, a CPA, or another corporate attorney to help you form your practice. When we look at financial planning as a whole, there's other several things that we need to talk about, and that would be the way that advisors charge. There's three main ways, and it used to be that primarily it was all done through commissions, right? Commission advisors are compensated, have crazy amounts of conflicts. There's honestly no way that they're going to sell you a cheaper product without first considering the loss of their own income because they can make a much bigger commission selling you a more expensive product. Back in the day, it used to be kind of like the boiler room style where you'd buy and sell stocks and they'd be calling you up on the phone to buy things. And there was charges each time that they were buying and selling a stock. And that was churning the account, but that was the way that they were compensated. Now with the internet and technology and the rise of index funds, things have been changing in that piece. So commissions are primarily now associated with a specific product like insurance but they do try to convince you to do financial planning with them or that they'll offer it again for a very low price or they'll offer it even for free until you have enough money to invest. But of course, they're selling you those products. Fee-based advisors not only provide financial planning, but they're selling the products to you. They can also earn kickbacks or commissions to other professionals that they should be discussing and having great conversations with to help you in any way that they can. That could be a CPA. If they introduce you to Jane CPA down the street, are they introducing you to Jane because Jane's the best for you? Or are they introducing Jane because Jane pays them a $500 new client referral fee? How do you know? And they technically don't even have to disclose it. Fee-based advisors, I know dozens of them. Some of them are my really good friends. It doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that they have bad compensation models. If you're going to hire someone for their expertise, why hire someone that has tons of conflicts of interest? So you're always doubting, are they telling you the right thing? 
or are they saying this because they get paid a different way? Is that really the best disability insurance product that you need? Or is it because they're only licensed through one company and that's all they can sell? Doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means if you're only licensed to sell this one product, but there's two dozen companies that could do the same exact thing and you actually need that product, well, is it the best one? Is it the, the best rate? Or is it because this is the one that they're licensed through and get compensated through? So they tend to earn a lot more money. I think, honestly, our business would probably be three times more profitable in a sense if we sold products at Physician Well Services, which we don't. But it creates, again, that huge conflict of interest. And it should actually state a conflict of interest will arise when your advisor has something to gain from selling you whatever it is. And it's especially true if they're selling you something that isn't in your best interest in the first place. That would be something like whole life insurance. Now, fee-only advisors are the other compensation model. By the way, I should say that over 97% of anyone who calls themselves a financial planner or a financial advisor is fee-based. That is a lot, right? If you lined up 100 people who call themselves financial advisors, 97, more than 97, which is kind of weird, but 97 of that 100 are fee-based, meaning they have tons of conflicts of interest. That leaves 3% or three people left that are fee-only. And what fee-only means is that the only way that they can get compensated by their client, you the client, is whatever is in the client agreement. So it strips away a lot of the conflicts of interest because they can't sell you products. You're hiring them for their expertise and service in that specific piece. Now, they can charge a couple different ways. They could charge an hourly fee, which is not very common, but they could charge you an hourly fee. They could charge you a fixed flat fee, which again is not very common. That's actually what we charge. So you know exactly what our price is as soon as you go to our website. There's no guesswork. It's right there in front of you. Or there's those that charge you a percentage of your investments. And usually it starts at like one and a half percent and then we'll scale down, meaning that it starts, let's say, at one and a half percent for the first half a million. Then it goes to one percent up to a million. And then it's 0.9 percent from a million to two million. Usually around one percent or 1.25 is kind of the quote unquote average that an advisor will charge for the first million dollars. Now, Those are the three fee structures. The one that has the least amount of conflict, I believe, is the fixed flat fee. Technically, they all three still have some conflict of interest, but it is still so much smaller than what the fee-based planners, that 97%, have because there's, again, no products being sold. So an hourly fee advisor is encouraged, just like your attorney, to run up the bill. They're going to talk to you for as long as they possibly can until they give you an answer, When they're building out plans, they could take as long or as short as they want. But of course, the shorter they take, the less they get paid. So why are they incentivized to work faster, right? So the hourly fee planning can be quite expansive and what that might turn out to be. And no one enjoys, I'm just talking from personal experience, I don't enjoy calling my attorney knowing that I'm on the clock as soon as he or she picks up the phone and bills me in in seven minute increments. So if I'm at the eighth minute, I'm getting billed for another seven minutes. That stinks to have billing be done that way. So what happens? You're less likely to reach out to them until the house is literally on fire. And that's not the relationship you should have with your financial advisor. 
The other way is the fixed flat fee way, which is what we charge. And so you know exactly what you're paying, what you're getting, and you have essentially a limited access to that person via email or phone calls or meetings. And usually there's some sort of structure evolved around there. So with us, we have five meetings in the beginning when we first start in those first three or four months together. And then essentially we're meeting every quarter. So you're paying us for access in between the meetings during the quarter where you have emails or things that you need to send us. And we're going to send you a video back explaining whatever it is. And then you're setting up an hour long call every quarter. And we're helping you through whatever it is in between, whether it's managing money, helping you facilitate between the different people like estate planning, a CPA, whether or an insurance agent. But you at least know exactly what you're getting. There's the most transparency with that fee structure. The other fee structure, which is what literally, I mean, 95% or more of advisors charge is that percentage of investments. And with that, if you're paying 1% on your first million and or million and a half dollars, you know exactly what you're paying for. But the advisors are primarily going to be focused on investment returns, which let's be honest, we can't control that. We don't know what the market is going to do tomorrow on Tuesday versus today on Monday. We can't forecast that much less 30 years into the future. There's no proprietary black box. We've proven that, right, with Nobel Prize winning research that talks about passive investing and index funds. That advisor will be doing some service to you around the behavioral side, right, making sure that like how we had in March with a 30 something percent decline, that you're not going to knee jerk and sell the cash and stick it under your mattress, that you're actually going to stay invested and they're protecting your money from you. All the fee only advisors, they're doing that. But where this differs is they're primarily focusing on investments. And two, they're incentivized to have you not pay down debt or to invest or to do other things with your money other than invest it with them because their entire paycheck revolves around you putting money with them. So fee-only advisors have the least amount of conflicts compared to fee-based or commission. And then when you look at it, a flat fee has the least amount of conflicts out of those fee-only advisors. Right, So that AUM or assets under management advisor might tell you to sell your home or invest the equity with them so they can collect the higher fee for managing more money. Good advisors are going to remove as many conflicts of interest as they possibly can. They serve your best interest. And you can do that by having and signing a fiduciary oath. So similar to the Hippocratic Oath, we sign a fiduciary oath with every client That says, under no circumstance, essentially, are we going to put our interest ahead of yours? We're trying to remove any conflict of interest that we have. One major conflict of interest that I would say all advisors have, though, is if you say, hey, Ryan, I really liked everything you do on your podcast. I want to work with you guys. Do you think we're a good fit for you? And I'm going to say, well, you're a physician um, or, or married to a physician and you're exactly the demographic we would love to work with that we work with with hundreds of you across the nation. Yeah, I would love, I think we would be a great fit. Now, the conflict there is, but there's also maybe other people that could provide this service to you, potentially even for a cheaper amount. But I'm going to tell you, yes, I think we should work together because you fit the exact avatar, the perfect client that we want to work with and that we work with currently and are helping a bunch. So there is that conflict. But that is such a, such a tiny conflict compared to, hey, by the way, I'm going to sell you a whole bunch of products and I'm going to load up your accounts with these high expensed or loaded funds and you're going to be paying me a 
boatload of money and you have no idea you're actually paying it. Right? When someone sells you a whole life policy, if you bought a million dollar whole life policy, let's call it just for sake of ease, you're probably going to pay that person without knowing it. Their commission is probably going to be 15000 to $25,000. That is astronomical. It's going to be 75 to 150% of your first year premium, depending on what product it was and how they ended up selling it to you. That is a massive conflict of interest. So the next way I would think that you can tell if you're working with a good advisor or what your advisor should be doing is to actually evaluate the service that they're giving you. And good advisors are going to give you holistic, comprehensive, amazing financial advice. And they're going to do that through uh, several ways. One would be is to focus on your long-term goals and help you actually not just say, what are your goals? Great. And you write them down. They're going to help you actually determine what are goals, what are SMART goals, which is an acronym of how to create a more thorough, in-depth goal. And then they're going to have regular check-ins around those goals. Some of you might be like, oh, that's too touchy-feely for me, right? That's okay if you think that. But once you get going with this stuff, it's not touchy-feely at all. This is the stuff that drives you, right? This is the life planning portion. I've talked about it a lot on the show, but this is so important. It's actually more important than any of the money pieces put together. Because if you don't know the path you're going down, how do you know if you're doing the right thing? How do you know if you're investing the right way? How do you know you're putting money in the right accounts? Right. If you told me, hey, I want to retire at 50. Well, if you just loaded everything into a tax deferred fund and had no other savings at all, what are you going to do for that nine and a half years from 50 to 59 and a half? You can't draw down any of that money without a penalty. Right. So it has long term implications. So these goals are really important, but not just, hey, write down your goals. It's helping you work through the process and the structure and they actually have some formal training in it right? They're not focused on short-term market fluctuations. They're not trying to actively, quote unquote, beat the market. They're trying to beat anything. You're with the wrong person. They're not selling you investments or insurance products to fatten their wallets. Their compensation completely comes from what is in your client agreement. It should be spelled out in that client agreement. It should be on their website. It should be simple and transparent. If you can't see it without talking to them, if you can't see what they're going to charge you, you're with the wrong person. They should incorporate tax costs into their investment recommendations. You're not going to want to be able to be trading in and out of a taxable account, generating all these ordinary income, right? When it kicks off, whether it's dividends or actually just trading, churning accounts, trying to be active managers, they're actually looking at it just from not the investment perspective but also they have a lens on the tax. Now they don't have to nerd out and you know read the tax code for fun, but they need to have knowledge around the tax code and how it can help and hurt you at the same time. They shouldn't be giving you any uneducated advice on student loans or forgiveness programs. Now I created a software called Loan Buddy and it originally started to help other advisors give their clients great recommendations on their clients' student loans. And what I have found after working literally with hundreds of advisors, we've analyzed over half a billion dollars in loans on the platform itself, is that most advisors, even if they claim to work with physicians, because some of those people that you see out on the internet are actually my paying subscribers in LoanBuddy, they don't understand how student loan work. They even put it in and 
can't even tell you what is actually happening, what programs you should be in, why it's good or why it's bad. Now, they don't have to nerd out on this stuff and read this stuff all the time like I do, but they have to understand a lot more than you because you have a lot of student debt. Our average client is 298000 or about $300,000 of student debt. That is tens of thousands of dollars of potential mistakes that they could be making. And obviously that's not in your best interest. So they need to be student loan experts if you're a physician working with an advisor. In order to be a good advisor, know when they're outside of their scope. And that's really hard for someone who is supposed to be, you know, I look at it as like we're your your PCP for your finances, right? I'm quarterbacking everything that's going on. And I need to know that when I am outside of my scope of knowledge, if you've got some really crazy tax issue that's going on, I'm out of my scope. I got to refer it out and that's okay. And we've actually partnered with a amazing CPA that we're launching our new tax practice uh, called Physician Tax Advisors coming for the 2020 tax season. Uh, if you're interested, shoot me an email, ryan at financialresidency.com. I'd, I'd love to hook you up with that. But when I get something like that, I'm going right to the source, right to John, who's my guy who we're, we're partnering together, Casey, John, and I. And I'm going to refer that business out to him because that's his field and specialty. And then most advisors, they're going to be, whether it's embarrassed or trying to save face or whatever it may be, and they're afraid to say, hey, this is outside my scope. Your advisor should be coordinating your efforts around other specialists. Your estate planning attorney, they should have resources for that. They should have resources to start up a practice. They should have resources around CPAs or like we're building one in-house. They should have resources for all those different pieces. They should know people who can help you with getting a physician mortgage. We've had plenty of sponsors on the show, a bunch of great guys that are in the mortgage space. If you're interested in trying to find a, a mortgage, go to financialresidency.com slash home loan and you'll find perfect person for someone in your state. But they should have those things. They should know what the refinance rates are at the student loan companies. They should know how to coordinate across all the other specialists. And last but not least, and this is something that I haven't found another advisor that works with physicians that does this like we do, is cash flow planning and understanding how in-depth that the cash flow planning should go, right? We talk about on the show all the time that in order to do this correctly, you need to know what the life planning is, but also what the cash flow planning or budgeting looks like. And we're really, really hands-on with clients around this piece. Now, there's some clients that kind of pass through this and three months later, we're not really needing to focus on it because it's already been built. The infrastructure is there. But we take a very direct, hands-on approach to cash flow planning most advisors will not touch this at all. One, because it's hard technology-wise. The tech just hasn't caught up to there like it has with robo-advisors and investing in index funds and all that. The tech just isn't there yet. It requires more effort, more staff, right? Which means less profit. Even though they know it's better for their clients, they won't sacrifice the profit in having staff really help manage this piece and sometimes it's because they're just not interested and they're like, look, I got bigger fish to fry. If I stopped working with Bob and Jane on their cash flow planning for two hours a month and I worked and tried to pitch and find more clients, that's a higher and better use for my time. Most advisors are going to think in that realm. We're obviously, if you've listened to the show at any length of time, you know how much Casey and I love cash flow planning. So be wary of this last piece here is just be wary of advisors who 
overpromise and claim that they always beat the market or that they have some quote unquote guaranteed system. There's no crystal ball. There's no black box. This is simple advice. Index funds, passive investing, but investments are just one small piece of the pie. Advisors tend to focus on it because that's the easiest way to get paid, but it's not the easiest thing to do. But again, it's just one piece of that pie. There's so many other things that fit into that pie. Last, make sure that they are transparent about how they are paid. And if you can't tell me in literally 10 seconds how much you pay your advisor, you need to go immediately, write them, look at their ADV, call them up on the phone, figure out exactly what you're paying, how much you're paying, and why it wasn't fully transparent. Because an advisor should be your most trusted person. Unfortunately, the industry has plagued us with a whole bunch of bad actors. The financial industry is not your friend, but the advisor you hire, you need to trust. You need to make sure that they're going to do the right thing. You need to make sure that they're competent, that they work only with physicians because physicians are very unique in the planning circum- situations that you have. And then you need to be very, very transparent about how you're getting paid. All right. So we are starting a new segment. I'm really excited for our mystery money hero. So who is our first hero? It is Dr. Brent Lacey from the scope of practice, and I'm really excited to bring him on. So let's jump in and hang out with Brent. Brent, what's up, man? Thanks for coming on the podcast and answering a couple questions for me. Yeah, absolutely. Fired up to be here. This is going to be fun. So as we're coming out of COVID and we're looking for new ways to make us better, more efficient, however you want to maybe describe that, how do we need to be thinking about our businesses to maximize profit and hopefully increase efficiency? So I think the first thing that really matters here is that physicians need to Think of their practice as a business first. And this is actually an answer to the question, but I want to lay this as a foundation because I feel like this is something that physicians don't focus on. We're coming out of med school, we're coming out of residency, and it's like, okay, let me go take care of my patients. Let me help some people. Let me make people feel better. I'm going to go save the world. And we fail to ever take into account the fact that this is a business. And so it feels kind of icky sometimes to think of it that way, but we really have to consider that. So I would really encourage people to really think of this as a business. And so what's the point of a business? To make money. So if you are not generating a profit, you do not have a viable business. And that matters because if you don't have a viable business, you can't continue to take care of your patients. You can't continue to pay your staff. You can't continue to provide for your own family. So there's a lot of people that are depending on you to make this business work. So that's the first thing is I want to absolve anybody of any guilt of feeling like, well, you know, I don't want to be a mercenary. You know, no, you, you have to think of this. It really does matter. So the next thing that I think is really an important sort of mindset shift for folks is that you need to think of your time as units of money. Okay. And so what I mean by that is any activity that you engage in during the day needs to be making money or needs to be geared towards some activity that will generate revenue. So if you look around the things in your office, let's say you're a primary care doc, for example, everything in your office costs money, except for you. You make money for the business. And so anytime that you are not spending doing things that make money is basically time that your business is not being productive. Okay. So I'll give you an example. So when I was in the military as a solo practitioner in a couple of different locations, 
you know, I had times where I didn't have a nurse and I didn't have a medical assistant. It's basically me and an admin person. And I'm doing a lot of knucklehead stuff that, frankly, I don't mind doing. It's not that any labor is beneath me. But if I'm spending my time calling back patient medication refills, if I do three or four of those a day, well, I'm not getting, I'm not able to reimburse for that. And instead, I could have been seeing a patient and getting them ready for a colonoscopy, or I could have been seeing a patient and helping them with their cirrhosis. And so if there's some activity that I can offload to someone else and thereby free myself up to do things that make money, then that's a really important mindset shift that I think we need to all go through. Another thing that I think is really helpful is to set up systems that allow you to have maximum productivity. And one of the things that's really important, I think, as physicians is that we learn to automate or delegate more. And this was a hard thing for me, I know, because I tend to want to just do everything myself because I know I'm going to do a good job. I know I'm going to be hard charging on it. I know I'm going to produce a good final result. But I had to get to a place where I was comfortable training other people to do as good a job as I needed them to do to free me up to do the things that only I can do. Okay. So if you are able to have a medical assistant that is working with you, they should be checking your patients in. They should be doing vitals. You should be walking into your patient's room ready to go. You may only have seven or eight minutes with that patient to be able to do everything. And if you're spending the entire time making sure that you've input the vitals into your computer, you are burning money. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I think people ought to consider is cost. Okay. So every dollar that you spend, on care, every dollar that you spend on equipment, every dollar that you spend on overhead is cutting into your bottom line. You want to have a you know a quality clinic. You want to have a high quality care that you're delivering. But it's very important, especially now that we're starting to see some big changes coming post COVID. It is really really important that we be very cognizant of cost. And one of the places where I think that maybe people don't pay much attention to is people. And one of the things that I think is really important for us as physicians, you know, we are going to be leaders in whatever space we're in. Even if you're not a business owner, if you're a physician, you are a leader by default. I mean, people look up to you. You are the one who directs the clinic traffic. You are the one who runs the OR. And so it's important for you to, I think, think of yourself that way. So I would bet that every person listening to this can think right now of at least one or two people in the clinic that they work with that either isn't doing the job that they're doing very efficiently or very well, or you've often wondered, what are they really doing? It's like that great scene from Office Space when the two consultants are talking to that one guy's like, so what would you say you do here? And I'm not suggesting that you know you have like a, a big Friday firing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But I do think it's important that every person in your office, every person in your clinic space is making maximum use of their time. And this is really the core of it. And this is going to sound really egocentric. But from a business model standpoint, it's the only thing that makes sense. You need to think of yourself as the most important cog in the machine of your office, purely from a business standpoint. Now, from a leadership standpoint, you need to think of yourself as less important on an existential plane that other people are more important than you as a general rule. But in terms of the function that you perform, if your time is not maximized on revenue producing activities, you are going to be losing money. So I'll give you another example. So years ago, I convinced my director to let me hire a nurse practitioner. And you know we trained her up and she was able to 
do a whole lot of clinic, a lot, a lot of clinic that were all generating or mostly were generating procedure visits for me. And so that made it so instead of me spending 70% of my time in the clinic doing, you know, clinic visits and follow-ups, I could spend more like 70% of my time in the procedure suite doing things that only I can do that frankly reimburse better. And then she can be doing the clinic. And it was a no-brainer. I mean, when I looked at the numbers, she was able by herself to see enough patients in clinic to more than make up for the amount that we were paying her. And by putting me out of the clinic and into the procedure suite more, it dramatically boosted the overall revenue of the clinic. So it's important for us to think of those ripple effects that if you make a decision that short-term maybe doesn't look really great or has some costs in the short-term like hiring a new person, but they generate 1.3 times the amount of their salary, that's a win-win every time. And so those are the big things that I think people really need to focus on. But it all comes down to thinking of your business as a business and remembering that each 5 to 10-minute time unit that you have in your day that is spent on a non-revenue producing activity is a time unit that you need to try to find a way to either automate or delegate to somebody else. And if you can. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. I struggle a lot, even in my own businesses, like with one saying no to things. And I'm like, oh, it's just an extra 10 minutes. I can afford that call or I can afford to help someone with XYZ and know that I'm doing this just out of the kindness of my heart, not to get paid. Those little things add up. And when you think about it in those little increments of time and time is money. It does add up. It's hard. And it's hard to run a business. Like none of this is easy. Even if you were trained in business school to do these things, being the boss, running a business, lots of people count on you. Lots of people depend on you for their livelihoods. There is a lot of pressure. Great answer. And I really appreciate you coming on and dropping a couple knowledge bombs for us. So everyone, you can check out his amazing podcast called The Scope of Practice, where he's helping physicians manage their businesses more successfully. Brent, thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, it's always fun to have someone else, a different voice on the show. And I think I'm going to be doing more of these where we're bringing in other people and we'll have some fun mystery around it. who's coming in this week. And we're going to do these on Mondays. So stay tuned for that. Now, I got a ton of listener questions that have been piling up. I did all those shows in April and it just wasn't sustainable. I wish it was. It is really, really, really hard to do a daily show. So much props to people who can do that. I'm going to stick with Mondays like this type of format, Fridays with our financial health assessments with Casey. But we have a ton of questions that have come in. So I'm going to be answering them every Monday. We might even add some on Fridays. I would prefer if you called in the question like our person has done this time, because it's way easier to actually just push play and see this and hear someone's voice. And that way you know it's a real question. I've probably gotten dozens and dozens of questions just in the last 30 days that have been written in that I'll try to get to, but it's way better if you've actually emailed me, go to financialresidency.com slash question and just read out your email. It'll be way easier to probably get to it faster. But again, that same link, financialresidency.com slash question, please use it and call in a question. I'd love to answer it on air. So let's jump in with our curbside consult. Hi, Ryan. Question for you for military families transitioning from civilian residency. My spouse is a general surgery resident, and we will receive orders to who knows where towards the end of July 2020. 
we're saving cash right now and also trying to invest in our future. No student loans, but we're kind of curious about how much cash we should save. The cost from one duty station to another is pretty big difference. For example, being stationed in San Antonio, Texas would be a lower overall cost or Biloxi, Mississippi would be a lower overall cost in comparison to Washington, D.C. or Sacramento, California. We honestly have no idea where we could be next year and just curious on your take on how we save for the unknown in this case. Thank you. Thanks so much for calling in that question. I love it. So basically, you're trying to figure out how much cash to save. And so obviously, if you don't have the details, I'm not going to have the details. But I'll try to give you the best answer I could if we were just chatting on this. First, no student loans, which is awesome. I understand why, but that's just such a cool perk of that. Now, it's the cost is going to be tough to plan for. But my take on this would be pick the highest place that you could actually end up going, which is sounds like it's going to be Washington, D.C., and then I would plan for that and budget for that. What is the rents going to cost? What are the cost and the cost of goods and the cost of services in that city? And I would try to build honestly a fake budget and go through your fixed expenses, go through what your variable expenses would be. Look at your actual pay. Take 25% if you can. Again, this is going to be tough in this part of your career, but that's the goal. Take 25% of your take home pay and use it as paying yourself first. The 75% that's left, see if that's possible to live off of. Now that 25% of take-home pay might end up being in the early part of your career, 10 or 15%, but start building those habits now. Your future self is going to thank you so much that you are starting to have a real good, healthy relationship with money. You're paying attention. You're building a budget. So if it was me, and this is our situation, I would look at DC. I'd try to figure out what it would cost if we were there right now, walk through it all. And then if you end up not going to DC, you get to be pleasantly surprised when it ends up being a lot cheaper. So for our quick community updates, there's always lots of stuff happening. I've been saying we're getting a new website. We are so close. Oh, we're so stinking close. I know it's coming. I'm really excited that it's here. Lots of good things are happening. We have a second book that is coming through the pipeline. It is going to be all about buying your first home. What is happening from a real estate agent's perspective? What is happening from the mortgage perspective? How to not get taken advantage of in either of those? How to not buy too much house? Really, it's a book you're going to read in three to five hours and understand everything that you need to know to buy your first home. It is going to be authored by our very own Doug Krause, who's been on the show several times. He is an amazing guy who is married to a physician. I'll be doing the forward. I can't wait for it's out. We're looking for titles right now. If any of you knowing kind of that amount, what the book could be titled, shoot me an email, ryan at financialresidency.com. If I pick your title, I will send you a $100 Amazon gift card. Seriously, we're having trouble with titles. You guys are super, super smart. Some of you are actually really, really creative. So I'd love for you to send us what you think the titles may be. I also encourage you to check out our book, Financial Residency, Creating Your Financial Plan Without the Long Hours and Sleepless Nights. It's on Amazon right now. You don't have to type the whole thing in. Type Financial Residency. You'll find me. It's actually the one linked right next to the White Coat book because a lot of you end up buying his and my book at the same time. Our book is all around teaching how to build a basic financial plan 
can do it for like under $25. Really excited that Taylor and I were actually able to complete that. It's got a free course with a ton of templates and good stuff with it. So please check it out. Last thing in our community is our financial fellowship will be launching the first or second week of August. If you don't know what that is, basically it is a 12-week program that we will help you build your own custom financial plan in a group setting. We are going to meet every other week, talk about the current course topics. So you each week you're going to have a video, you're going to have a bunch of templates, and then every other week we're going to have a one and a half hour call with myself. And usually Casey joins in on those, talking about those topics that you just researched, listened, built the templates around. At the end of the 12 weeks, you will have built your own financial plan. And then we will join our alumni, which will be around the similar setting, video, templates, coursework, and a call every month. We got some really cool stuff coming. We actually started a book club inside of it. There's lots of fun things that are happening inside the fellowship as it continues to grow. So if you want to check it out, come and uh, join us, financialfellowship.com or shoot me an email and I'm happy to reserve your spot. We're not going to open it up to like hundreds of people. That would be crazy. So we usually do 20, 25 people at a time. All right, just like everything here, there is an important disclaimer. Please know that this is for entertainment purposes only. This is not meant to be any specific financial advice at all. Unfortunately, I don't know you or what's going on in your specific situation unless you're a client of ours at Physician Well Services, and that's completely different. But please, again, treat this as entertainment purposes only and reach out to your attorney, your CPA, or your financial advisor. If you need a financial advisor, come check us out at Physician Well Services. Or if you need a CPA, come check us out at physiciantaxadvisors.com. All right, everyone, have a great rest of your week, and I will see you on Friday. Cheers. Cheers.